The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. People claim to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, a very different present life. The psychotic drones, where the mystic swims, they're drowning. Hello and welcome back to the Astral Flight Simulation Podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art and culture. Today I have a uh, milestone guest here, Mr. Lomez, man who goes by Lomez, uh, Behold the Pale Horse Lomez on Twitter. You all probably know him pretty well. He's a, yet another guest that doesn't need an introduction. But Mr. Lomez, say hello. Astral, how are you? Um, I want to preface this. I uh, have previously done a couple podcasts with a um, with a voice changer app, and uh, that that was met with. Um, some complaints from, uh, from commenters. So, um, I, I spent, uh, some money on a new voice changer app and that's what you're hearing now. Um, and I hope this is, uh, better on the ears, easier on the ears for uh, your listeners. Yeah. I'm kind of happy and proud about that. It's like, uh, you're making your debut here on my show. So, uh, but but make no mistake, this is not my real voice. Okay, yes. I don't want to I don't want to confuse anybody. Yes, but uh, the um, the voice from beyond the veil and from the other realm is yes. uh, it, it lends this particular ambiance to the speaker that uh, I don't think is readily. I don't think a wide audience is ready to take take it up. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. Zero was on my show, and a lot of people familiar with you are familiar with him and he uses it but on his it like adds to the the whole mystique of his you know him being a horrorist and the anonymity yeah. you know agree so good, I, I think it definitely i think it works for zero and however he uh sort of turns the dials on on uh his voice changer seems to work a little bit better than how i've had it in the past so i'm, I'm not um I'm not advocating that zero changes what he does. I think it works for him. No, of course. And this sounds good. And actually, you were the only guy I was going to make an exception for because I wanted <laughs> you to come on really bad. But this is cool. This worked out. So listen, without further ado, though, we have a whole we have a whole schedule topic discussion schedule here because there's a lot I've been wanting to talk to you about. But we were we were um, sort of sort of going off on a tangent prior to recording. And I was like, the stuff that you were saying was so good. I wanted to capture it. So just to let everybody know where we were going with this, um, our, our conversation prior to turning the recording on was that I was telling Lomez that I forsook a career in, I don't know if forsook is a word, but you know what I mean. I forsook a career in academia, <laughs> even though that was my interest. And I, I did start down that road. Uh, I don't want to give too much personal information, but I, I was I went to an art school and I got a, ended up with a liberal arts degree and decided I was on the path to becoming um, an academic. I guess that's a neutral, neutral term. 
uh, in the literature department, and I decided not to for various reasons and, and just became, for lack of a better term, a blue collar worker. And I never regretted my decision. And I was explaining to Lomez before we started recording that the reason I don't regret it is was all financial. I was able in my free time to at least read the books required at this point, you know, for at least a master's, if not a PhD. And I like to say that in my best moments, I call myself an autodidact. And in my moments of doubt, I call myself a dilettante. But either way, I felt like I was better off going the route that I did. Oh, and the whole context of this was talking to Lomez about meeting people online and, and you know, having intellectual discussions and, and discussions about art and literature. But Lomez was telling me that it was probably better correct me if I'm mischaracterizing what you said, it was probably not only better financially for me to make this decision, but better intellectually and artistically for me to make that decision. Because um, he said maybe academia wasn't what I thought it was going to be before I went into it. So maybe you can clarify that and expand on it a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I only know this secondhand, um, but, but from people I speak to who are within academia or who have gone through academia, um, well, firstly, just from a career standpoint, as most people know, it's, it's no secret that it's largely a dead end. I mean, only something like uh, maybe 4%, I think, as a figure I've seen before of uh, people who complete a PhD actually go on to get tenure track jobs. Most are languishing as adjunct professors and you know you teach some classes at a junior college somewhere or if you're lucky you might have you know uh, a kind of semi-regular teaching gig at a big university where you get paid less than like a high school like a public high school teacher um, so it's a bleak career and then you know the benefit I suppose that you're supposed to get out of this is uh you living the life of the mind. Okay. This kind of, you know, a lot of maybe young people uh, who sort of gravitate towards some of the ideas that we see in our space and elsewhere, you know, they have this sort of romantic notion about, uh, you know, reading books all day and then you get to teach students or whatever, but um, that's largely not true. It maybe might have been true at one time, but the academic life, uh, academic intellectual life is as barren as any other cultural space that exists uh, now in the current year. And so what I was trying to explain earlier, I was trying to uh, sort of affirm and validate your decision. All right. Me and Lomez had a little bit of technical difficulty, so I had to kind of stop that uh, uh, unnaturally where it was. But Lomez, you were saying that uh, the academic community is not necessarily intellectually, doesn't necessarily uh, 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 encourage intellectual freedom or curiosity. Yeah. Okay. So that's part of it. Um, basically, you know, what I think people might expect is that you're going to be, well, maybe not people in our sphere, but like the general. Uh, sort of mythology around academics and and professors and you know you're you're living this life of the mind and you're going to be surrounded by interesting people who are 
even if they have like different points of view are going to be um, intellectually curious and the kind of people you want to have uh, conversations with like sophisticated conversations with about this or that topic. And you'll be able to sort of mine the, the very depths of your own thinking with regards to whatever your interests are and use sort of the people you're around as kind of, um, you know, uh, sparring partners um, to sort of grow those muscles and allow you to get deeper into your own thinking. Okay. Something like that. But the truth is, and this is totally apparent when you like look on Twitter or something at academic Twitter, you're just surrounded by midwits and, and what amount to like regime bureaucrats, like, um, you know, uh, I've, I've heard like derisively this term of like, like the neat binder kids. Okay. Like when you're in grade school, there are these like girls at the front of the class who always have like perfectly neat organized binders. And that's essentially who you're dealing with in academia. These people are very uninteresting. They're yes men. They're, they're bureaucrats. They have these petty bureaucratic ambitions, very little actual sort of, uh, very little uh, of intellectual value is created or uh, discussed at all um, within that milieu. And so whatever you get out of that experience is going to be something you just, you come to on your own because you're just uh, self-motivated and self-directed in that way. But that's as true as if you were a professor. Um, it would be as true as if you were a professor, as if you were, you know, whatever blue collar, white collar job you have, you're going to find time outside of the structure of academia to explore those interests. And so, so academia does very, has very little added value. Being an academic has very little added value. What it, but what that added value is, is like this meta level um, uh, sort of skill development where you learn how to sift through a lot of information and where you have some um, sort of intellectual agenda in mind and, and, and academia teaches you how to most efficiently sort of meet the needs uh, th that you have for any given task, whether it's writing a book or sort of thinking about some idea. Whereas autodidacts, like the kind that we're surrounded by, they sort of often lack these skills and they get stuck on, um, on certain kinds of ideas and, and problems that you learn how to negotiate when, when that's your full-time job. It's like, um, I recently learned how to play chess and I, I never played chess before. And uh, I got to a certain point, like I, I was pretty good at it for a little while, but then I got to a point where I was getting stuck and like, there were these people just consistently beating me who I knew I, I had like understood the game like in a deeper and better way than they did. But they had these little tricks and, and like I was making these little mistakes. And like once I learned what these simple strategies were, I got over that really quickly and it was able to like sort of accelerate up the like rating ladder. Um, but I but these are these are the kind of tricks that like you just you learn by being immersed in uh, like 
you know, you, you like watch chess videos and like read chess books. Okay. There's something similar with academia where you, you reach this point in the learning curve um, in pursuit of some intellectual interest where academia gives you these little shortcuts and tricks and strategies to like overcome uh, these places where you might otherwise plateau if you're an autodidact. Okay. That, that's a kind of maybe crude analogy, but, but that's what comes to mind. No, I, I get what you're saying. And um, a lot of, a lot of proverbial ink has been spilled over the last, you know, five to seven years about how like woke politics and ideology is like ruining intellectual discourse because it's like, it, it's not, it's, it's, it's seeped into academia um, in the last generation and people like uh, Richard Rorty and yeah. Alan, Alan Bloom and others. He wrote Qu Closing of the Western Mind, right? I think that was Alan Bloom. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> We're talking about how it was seeking seeping into uh, academia. And now th this generation of people like Jordan Peterson are talking about how it's oozing out of academia now into into the mainstream. And yeah. I kind of want to pick up on two points you made. The first in in light of what I just said is that um, I have to imagine the number of people within academia who see what's happening and think it's ridiculous is, is quite high, but they they don't feel comfortable. It's not safe for them to speak up. Um, and unfortunately, I'm sure the number that are that tr are true believers is also uh, higher mm -hmm. than I'd like to admit. Uh, but mm -hmm. either way, uh, the thought conformity or the the policing is enough to keep them keep them in line. And it's like academia is no longer the place to go for intellectualism. And it hasn't been for a while. And then the other thing about the plateauing of the autodidact. So, you know, any comment you want to say on what I just said, although that's pretty that's a pretty um, standard take, even for like a a moderate libertarian type like uh, Quillette talks about this nonstop. Mm -hmm. But Quillette, Quillette, though, as someone who talks about that, they pretty much like they pretty much like screamed into the void until they became totally obscure. Uh, they had a yeah. minute there where people were paying attention to them and they've they're a good example of 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 uh, the dead end that doing that is. Yeah. And the other thing about plateauing, uh, I feel that I know what you mean, because sometimes I feel like I'm there's like a huge blank spot and I'm missing something. And uh, as again, you know, when I'm feeling like an autodidact, I'm reading someone and then I'm reading who he read and then I'm reading who who they read. And then I realize my most recent example, for example, is, uh, you know, I've been going through like the, the last German idealist guys or the post German idealist, maybe mm -hmm. Nietzsche, Heidegger, Spengler. Mm -hmm. And it's I'm like, okay, so these guys read Goethe, Schopenhauer and and uh, Hegel. So I'm going back. And then like it's like hitting me like I know this is gonna sound stupid to some people, but it's hitting me like, okay, these guys are so couched in Greek thought that I really <laughs> need to go back. You know, I haven't read like Plato <laughs> in like 20 years. Yeah. Um, and I have very little Aristotle. I've read like books about Aristotle, but I've never read him. And I was like, okay. And it, it's like, I felt so silly. Like it's, it took me this long to realize how much of what these guys are talking about is coming out of Aristotle. And like, that's, is that kind of what you're talking about, about the plateau thing? Whereas like, if I was being guided by, you know, a professor or something, I probably would have, um, that would have been stressed to me. Yeah. So that's, that's definitely, uh, like a huge part of it is, um, 
just, you know, philosophical lineages. Okay, this has already been sorted out more or less by really smart, dedicated academics, okay, for centuries. I like to call and, it like the, the intellectual edifice that they yeah. like kind of take you through through a formal education. Anyway, go on. Correct. So, yeah, so, um, you know, there's there's like great wisdom in just following with the, uh, uh, you know, trajectory of reading that has been established by these people who have been around for a long time. They're the kind of in, endurance of these uh, lineages or, or the sort of order in which you approach this edifice. Um, the reason that that strategy has endured for so long is because it basically works. And so, yeah, you, you would have been sort of able to shortcut your way through a lot of this. And uh, now what you might miss out on though, is like what autodidacts provide and which is super necessary. They're kind of like, um, they serve the same function as like weird Darwinian mutations. Okay. Like for evolution, you might stumble by accident upon some sort of forgotten or neglected piece of writing, let's say, that actually turns out as way more critical for understanding something in the current year than that uh, more traditional kind of edifice that you might encounter in a, in a traditional academic setting. Um, and so that, the, that's like the, the, both the pros and the cons, which is the autodidact might encounter accidentally something that doesn't exist in that traditional edifice, but then you, you, you can easily run into shortcuts and you end up wasting a lot of time potentially. And sometimes you just don't know where to go to fill in the gaps that, that might, you might have. But then there's also this kind of dispositional approach to this kind of reading that you learn, I guess, in academia. So I hear, which is that it, you're approaching this reading from like a utilitarian sort of perspective, by which I mean, you're trying to get something specific out of it. There's like an, there's an output that you're working toward. And, and um, that helps direct your energy because you're producing something with this. Maybe it's a thesis or a book or whatever. You're trying to synthesize a variety of different ideas. Um, because you need to in order to publish something so that you can maintain your status as a professor or whatever. Whereas the idodidact is often just in pursuit of like this kind of generic self-edification. There's nothing wrong with that. But because it's a little less focused, uh, you can often like lose track of where this is all headed or what it's all for. And then, and then like oftentimes there's like this post hoc kind of like rationale for why you're doing this all. Oh, it, it, well, so you're doing this all because this is going to help you like solve our current political crisis. Well, maybe, maybe not, probably not. Um, but you're, you need to like justify all of that intellectual effort in some way. And, and so you might be tempted to construct a kind of um, like a telos for why you're doing all of this beyond just self-edification. And so, okay, so those are a couple of the reasons why I think that like some of the structure that a kind of like academic background might pro provide somebody. Um, but I do want to say one thing, going back to the previous point, if you don't mind, just quickly, 
like this idea that there's all this uh, preference falsification within academia, like there's all these people in academia who like understand that what's going on is adverse to the mission of, uh, you know, um, seeking out knowledge yeah. and producing knowledge or something. Okay. Wisdom. I think that's totally wrong. I don't think there's much preference falsification at all. I think there's a very strict and rigorous weeding out process from the time you really enter undergrad all the way up through the tenure hiring process that systematically weeds out people who are not going to play the sort of academic game, um, which is, you know, it's, it's sort of complicated, but it's a kind of status laundering where you are trading these, uh, these, these chits to each other in the form of publications and promotion of the work of like-minded sort of bureaucrats so that they can get better administrative positions to hire more people like you who will then produce the same kind of what amounts to like empty work this it, it's all rather pointless um but it but it serves this kind of like this grift this this yeah what i call status laundering grift um which plays into all the sort of the credentialism of of academia um so, but in any case I, do, I don't think there's like a bunch of academics who are like um uh, sort of disgruntled and frustrated by the by the present reality of what it means to be like a professor. This is the environment they thrive in. They they love it. Uh, I should clarify because what you're saying is is clearly clearly true. That uh, when I said that, I definitely had the generational divide in mind. I'm definitely thinking of um, older professors. Maybe they've even oh yeah at this point. Retired. The boomers are gone though. I yeah, mean, that's like, what I'm saying. They might be gone like right the. Now. The sort of uh, idealistic lib boomers who oversaw, um, you know, the American university system for the last 50 years, who were much too tolerant of the sort of revolutionaries that were hired into the university and had the explicit intention of marching through this institution. I mean, they, they just failed to see how energized and, uh, you know, that, that these people were telling the truth when they said they wanted to destroy and, and um, you know, whatever, decolonize these institutions. The, the boomer libs were much too tolerant of that, but they, they did genuinely believe in like intellectual curiosity and, and you know, knowledge production and all that stuff. Um, they were just much too idealistic. And yeah, they're gone. They're mostly gone. So you say that, and I agree. I, I think you're mostly right. However, we do have this phenomenon of anonymity. And when I was mm -hmm. talking to you about my transition from uh, being a normie and just, you know, being uh, my real face and my real name uh, and, and comporting with uh, intellectuals in different circles online, but, but pretty mainstream circles online. Um, and some of the intellectuals would be either podcast hosts or, or, or professors, uh, YouTube personalities, just your, your normal guy that, that, uh, the the somewhat in the somewhat online person knows who they are. Um, mm -hmm. The transition from that to the anonymous Twitter was like a huge awakening because it was like discovering this whole other world existed and and 
and knowing that there was something wrong with uh, the intellectual and the artistic culture in America, there's something something probably that was going to end in its death, which I think it if it hasn't mm-hmm. yet, it we're close. Um, I, I, I was shocked, like like blown away, and it's been years at this point, and I'm still like recovering from how much higher caliber of uh, intellectualism and knowledge and uh, insight this sphere has than anywhere else that I've encountered. And, and you know, something that probably goes without saying, mainstream culture, uh, when mm-hmm. I'm talking about news, cable news and things like that, it's just, uh, it's just like light years ahead of that. But yeah. some of the people you can tell, I mean, it's, it's kind of no, there's, we don't want to even get into who is what in real life, but, but we know, and some people admit it, we know that some of these people uh, have formal educations and that what they're doing is like a, I like to call it like the Procopius method. The guy who wrote the um, biography, the living biographer of Justinian, who, who mm-hmm. had the official history, he was writing it as it happened. And then he had the secret history that he like hid under his bed. Yeah. Where he said, yeah. you know, Justinian was like, I mean, if I remember, it's been a long time. He, I think he said he like had sex. He was like raped by demons and uh-huh. his face <laughs> would like morph like in the shining in the in the book uh that the guy gets possessed by all these demons and his face morphs to like all these different Im- visages and i think procopius says that happened to justinian in the middle of the night he would wander the palace halls screaming anyway i'm 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 uh, indulging myself because i love that story that he that he made that secret history i feel like that's what a lot of the the anons are doing mm-hmm. they're they're by day they're playing you know good little boy getting a pat on teeth pat on head by teacher and by night they're on uh anonymous twitter uh you know calling calling them them demons yeah i think that's totally true and uh a term i've used before to describe like a lot of the people who um who kind of traffic in our spheres i mean in by any respect are what you might call like the tip of the meritocratic sphere um these are people who would be identified as quote unquote elites uh, based on their sort of positions within whatever institutions they're working in. Um, but I don't, I think it's, it's important not to, to confuse the fact that our space, our little space here is sort of saturated with these types is any indication that there are a lot more of them out there. It's not like a kind of thing where, you know, where you see one cockroach, there's, there's 20 or whatever. Um, it may just be that all of these sort of disaffected or disillusioned sort of elites, I guess you could say, the, you know, who are working inside of the regime by day, um, have all just kind of organically gravitated towards this one place, you know, this sphere is a kind of like shelling point uh, for, for these particular people, but it, it still may be the case that they're very few and far between in aggregate number in total number. Oh, that's an excellent point. Um, that's an excellent point. Do you think that this sphere has, I, I hate to put it this way, but I'm going to, um, an obligation to do more than just talk to itself? Um, that's word, a really I'm good hesitant. question. Yeah. The word obligation yeah. is a tough word, but I, I think I'm going to stick with it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't before thought too much about like purpose or duty. It, it's simply been enough to just um, engage in these conversations for very selfish reasons because it's interesting and it's like for me personally, my only outlet to do this. I, I come from a family of normies, like normie libs. I, I live inside of a normie lib milieu. I, uh, most of like my social contacts, just because of the particular socioeconomic position that, that I'm in, are all just kind of like normie NPR libs. So I have nowhere else to have these discussions other than with these people I find online. And uh, that's, I, I haven't really like thought much more past that, but, but I'm beginning to um, because it's becoming apparent that these conversations, like other people are listening in and other people with influence are listening in and are taking these ideas and like maybe moderating them in, in some way, though maybe not even that much, and using them um, to advance what I think are valuable political causes. You take someone like Tucker Carlson, who very obviously is reading the kind of things that you know people are writing in our sphere and is quoting directly from them, but there are many others like him. And to the extent that Tucker Carlson has an audience, uh, we do too. And so purpose beyond that, I, I, I don't really think of any purpose or duty beyond that. Uh, I think the role, hmm, it sounds grandiose. Okay, so what? How, how do you think of your own role in like the discourse? I, I almost just like cringe even like having that interior thought, but uh, is just to say interesting things that you believe to be true. Okay, and that's it. That's that's the only duty or responsibility. And then it's, you know, someone else's role in this ecosystem, maybe Tucker Carlson or someone else or a politician like Blake Masters, let's say, to take these ideas and then advance them in more, a more practical way so that they have influence uh, in our politics. I couldn't agree more. And the way I would phrase it is it's almost like it's almost like we objectively do have an obligation, but we have to operate without keeping that in mind. We can't, we can't act like we're on a mission. I don't think I think yeah. that's, and I, and, and, and part of my, you know, I didn't like come here with this vision. You, I stumbled upon here. Actually, I should say this on air. I said this to you uh, before we recorded that, um, being online and like listening. And this went on for like 10 years, by the way, I was like, you know, listening to a podcast and then going to their website and finding a Facebook mm -hmm. group and talking to people and YouTube, things like that. And starting around, I guess, 2017, 2018, like I had already heard of Yarvin and Moldbug from a friend of mine. I tell that story on the Yarvin episode uh -huh. and I had already read a little bit of unqualified reservations, but it didn't somehow like I wasn't in the right mindset didn't like hit me like how impactful and important and prescient that writing was and I didn't mm -hmm. quite see the cultural force that he was yet but I kept seeing his name around so I would like look a little deeper and then I, and then as the years went by into like 2019 like I just like 
it, it was everywhere. His name was everywhere and people were talking about him all the time. So I decided finally, like, I'm going to really just dive into this guy's work mm -hmm. and this whole like movement, for lack of a better term, of people who grew up around it. And uh, mm -hmm. that's how I ended up here. And I had to like develop a perspective because I think I misunderstood at first uh -huh. like, because like the ne the normie presentation of everything that was happening, like the mainstream media, they're like they're they're they were making it out to be like there's this Trump movement going on that's being uh, instigated by like underground like neo-Nazis online, <laughs> you know, the, you know, the whole parody yeah. uh, 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 of a thing. Um. And it took a while for it to sink in that like this really is just like a cultural uh, happening. This is just a cultural mm -hmm. happening. And and Moldbug is just a smart enough guy that he saw it coming before it happened. And really like talking to you, you're one of the people who helped me like figure this out, like that while there is an obligation and the obligation is all the obvious stuff like uh the C, you know the chris rufo what's going on with crt mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. all the other lgbtq education in our schools and whatever else you want to name any any normal sort of thing but but the way to go about it is just to make culture and just to mm -hmm. to, to make art and um that was a that was a long-winded way of, of coming to one of the reasons i was so excited to have you on here and the thing that i really wanted to talk to you about uh which was like, like me and you had already scheduled this, but you tweeted since then. Um, you said, we don't need to choose between whether or not we're futurist or, or, or backwards looking reactionary. I'm mm -hmm. paraphrasing the tweet here. But, you, but then you say, the coherence of the art will be arrived at by making the art. And I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm going to bump this guy up the schedule. I want him on <laughs> next because like that crystallizes it. Uh, so perfectly and it like took me a, a long time it sounds in retrospect ridiculous but it took me a long time to like come to that conclusion you know and yeah um that's what the passage prize is all about am, am i right yeah it is and um i suppose i might i might clarify what i mean by the coherence of the art being arrived at by the production of the art itself what i just mean is that there's a lot of people who want to impose a kind of theory or like system uh, over what we're doing and have that theory or system guide how whatever, wh whatever this sort of energy, okay, I'll just call it energy and, and just like this, this collective interest within people uh or amongst people on our sphere okay let's just say i'm going to leave these terms vague they're better off being vague but um they want to they want to guide that energy and fit it into some prefabricated theory or system okay that's that's like a way of doing things and that's how like a formalist uh thinks but i don't think that's the appropriate way to um sort of lead this forward i think we just need to stimulate people to create stuff and again there's there's kind of like a darwinian um view to this that the stuff that that matters and it is going to be the stuff that endures 
that people want to recreate that have this kind of mimetic value, um, the style and aesthetics uh, that um, draw people to reformulate them or reconstitute them in their own genres or mediums are the ones that uh, we want to embrace. But, but we don't know what those things are going to look like ahead of time. It's, it's like impossible to predict. So we just have to produce a lot of stuff and count on the fact that the people within this space are self-selecting and of a particular, I don't even want to say ideological bent, because I think that is, that's, that's like secondary. What's more important is a, a kind of attitude or disposition uh, towards, let's say, the regime um, or just about what life should be in general. And so we got to trust that that, that community uh, or the people who participate in, in this sort of artistic creation will choose the things to reformulate that best advance that particular kind of attitude toward life and living. Okay, so um, I don't want to, in, in other words, I, I don't want to sort of put, we, I don't think we should put our thumb on the scale ahead of time. And so this is like, so yes, so the passage prize, how does the passage prize fit into this? Well, it's a space to induce this kind of creation that I think will lead forward uh, this energy in, a, in the most productive way possible. And um, like, there's a lot of people who are disappointed with this or that selection. Maybe I'm, I'm certainly willing to entertain that fact that that like maybe these aren't all the very best things. If we if we even could like measure what that meant, but they're all the the, the selections we made. Uh, I will stand by every single one of them as instantiations of this like vital way of of sort of thinking about the world and reconstituting the world through art. And some may be more productive than others. Some may advance this sort of um, uh, uh, particular kind of vitality more effectively than others, but we would be making a mistake to like pick only things that represent a kind of like quote unquote return a kind of like a uh, neoclassicism or vaporwave or whatever or only select you know a certain kind of like pastoralism let's say we want to pick a bunch of different stuff and and see what sticks and the and the and the main criteria ought to be what what has life in it uh, what of this work feels vital? Um, and we're not going to get it perfect every time, of course. And there's a lot of worthy work that might get neglected just because there's some constraints on how much stuff we can pick. But that's the impetus behind all of this. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, thinking about, I, I, I think if you guys were to choose the winners based on any of that criteria you just laid out, it would, it would like make it too artificial. You have to just, I, I think the most you can do, and you already sort of said this is just provide the impetus for people. Cause I, one of you guys said that, uh, I think it was zero that a lot of the people who like stepped up to like make something 
it was their first time ever. It was their first yeah. short story mm-hmm. or yeah, which is like amazing. And, and, mm-hmm. and that's the most you should do in my opinion. Like I, it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that the criticisms maybe were like from an ideological bent. Is that true? Like, no, actually, I think most of the criticism was aesthetic. Right. So but I mean, I mean, yeah. Aesthetics informed by ideology though. Like, yeah. It, aesthetics in the sense that, um, well, you know, honestly, it's like, okay, there, there's a lot to be said about, about a contest of this kind. And like a lot of things I learned, I'm just going to go off on a tangent real quick. It, it, it has to do with this question, but That's one thing about hearing. a, con- yeah. Okay. So one thing about a contest, and I did not really anticipate this, but I, maybe I should have, but the thing about a contest is you're selecting winners and, and uh, the corollary to that is you're selecting losers. And that's actually the sticking point is that um, 90% of the people more even who submitted work lost and uh, people who are not inside of an artistic space, but have maybe um, artistic impulses and like want, want to create stuff. And maybe it's their first short story or the first time they've like submitted to a contest. Um, it's very hard to be told that what you produce is not good enough. It's a major ego blow. It's very difficult to do that. And so this creates like some resentment and uh, I'm not, I'm not calling out anyone specifically here, but then there's a tendency to say, okay, well, let's look at the people who won and kind of like measure my worth against theirs. And um, that, that measure is very that measurement is or evaluation is very difficult to do when you have sort of suffered this defeat of the ego, um, however temporary. Okay, so where's the criticism then? The criticism largely is for like this one piece of art that was chosen as the third place winner. And it's kind of like this schizo, uh, like deep fried memes. That's a phrase I saw. It's it, very crude, sort of ugly. Okay. It's, it's like, they're like sort of ugly. And there's like this question of, well, why did you, why would you choose this? This is like torpedoing the whole contest. I don't want to speak. So the art judge, um, giant geo on Twitter, geo Panacetti, yeah, he's, he's a great artist yeah, he's and, a, and a, and a great light. He, he thinks really well about this. So one thing I'll, I'll take geo off the hook, that choice arose well, I don't need to get into the weeds. It doesn't matter. But um, let's just say it was like there was like a, a sort of committee choice. OK, when it came to that one, um, I think he does a really good job in the book of explaining why that particular set of images that was chosen for third place is a valuable addition to this contest and how it provides a kind of perspective on the sorts of art that's being made in the right wing online sphere, particularly in the space of memes. Okay. What is, what are memes as art memes be art. Um, and, uh, and so there's a justification for it. Maybe it's a thin justification or just like you're kind of word selling yourself to a justification of a bad choice. I'll even, I'll accept that as a criticism. Um, but I, but again, the, the point is to allow space for a wide variety of different kinds of aesthetics and styles. 
and see what emerges out of that from the audience who is then confronted by this collection of material. And it may be that that third place choice that everybody is deriding is kind of forgotten or neglected, but it may be in its own way that it has some, I think, potentially productive influence on how people like think about some of the sort of artistic, uh, some of their artistic choices maybe in the future and what kinds of aesthetics they wanna produce as a representation of this sort of collective energy that we're, that we're trying to wrangle with this contest. Okay, that's very long-winded. A lot of uh, what Norm MacDonald might call commie gobbledygook, but um, I'm sticking to it. No, that was good. That was good because what I was saying, I mean, he, what it sounds like I'm hearing some of the feedback you're getting is that is it comes down to like the standard divide on like conservative circles or right wing circles outside like the mainstream. Uh -huh. Because I, I think mainstream conservative politics is pretty much like backwards looking. And yeah. uh, a lot of it just crumbled and they're just going along. Like if you look at what the Cato Institute yeah. and, and the fucking weekly standard, the things that they're tweeting now, it's like it's straight up from like the the, the, the government, uh, you know, central, oh, it's so sad. Central it's, it's offices like of, of new think and whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think I mean, this is just like a side a side comment that probably deserves its own dissertation. But I think that that right there shows you like the, 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 the house of cards that like backwards looking conservatism was built on. But yes, um, I, okay, can, can I, let me just, yeah, go ahead. I have yeah, one go, more go thing. Really? Yeah, okay. So, so this is, um, you know, this just, this, this brings something to mind. Have you ever read the Dadaist manifesto? Yeah. I, uh, I, I can't remember what it was, but I was just reading about Dadaism again, like, uh, it was something about the history of communism and they were talking about, yeah. I fuck where I, it's going to take me a while to remember where I was reading that. But anyway, go on. Yeah. Okay, I, so I, they, I have read okay. it. I have read it. So the Dadaists, they're like retarded and gay and I have no use for them. And I think their artistic movement is totally broken. Okay. Let me just uh, stipulate that right off, right off the bat. But okay. So in the Dadaist manifesto though, they're looking at this um, sort of, world around them, this cultural space that they're in, this, there's a particular kind of milieu that they see as being sort of sclerotic and, and barren and have very similar to cr critique to the space they're working in as uh, many of us have of the sort of space that we're currently in. And so they make this decision like, look, what, what needs to be done here is to just like shatter this whole thing, just blow up the, our, our sense of aesthetics and, and completely like reformulate what it means to have art um, and produce art. And, and the problem with the Dadaists, among others, they had bad taste, but they were also like nihilists because their, their final point is that, well, there, there's nothing to take its place. There are no standards. We're just in this kind of like free floating postmodernist stew in which we can never settle on any sense of like beauty or meaning. And so let's just have this kind of very cynical uh, sort of playful approach to things um, that always kind of lends itself to plausible deniability. There's, there's like no commitment to any values or 
aesthetic sense. Okay, so, so they're nihilists. But I think they have, in some ways, they have the first part kind of right in the sense that there, there are these occasions where, where a culture, a prevailing order comes to a dead end, which is where we're at now, I think self-evidently so. And there needs to be some sort of dramatic uh, kind of explosion uh, or charge out of this place, out of this kind of cul-de-sac, this dead end um, towards something new. You kind of have to you kind of have to flip the board over. You have to start the game over, okay, and, and completely reformulate the rules. Now, the Dada's, again, they got it wrong because they said there's nothing that could take a place. I, I, my position is, no, there is something better that can be in this place. There are better ways of sort of thinking about the world and producing art that creates meaning and value for people. Um, but that, that initial process of like breaking out of this dead end space, this dead end cul-de-sac and not just, which is like the sort of quote unquote conservative MO for so long, which has just been to turn tail and retreat into this, you know, past that no longer exists. Um, we have to move forward and we got to blow out this dead end that's in front of us. And like this, maybe this kind of like meme art, uh, as crude as it is, it might assist in some way toward that end. Yeah, that's very, very well said. And you're very well said. The thing about Dadaism and the reaction against that and where some conservatives are coming from, uh, what they're saying about, you mentioned like bu bucolic pastoral, you know, mm -hmm. art uh, and, and return, the concept of return with a V in art would be to you know make beautiful art like people did in the past a beautiful mm -hmm. human f figure in its perfection and uh nature in its you know untouched pristine state or even like an agricultural scene that uh harkens back to an earlier time before our technology now the thing is is like i have massive sympathies with these people who want to go back like that and um i I want to as well. I've just mm -hmm. come to the conclusion that it's not possible. So if if so, when I said like ideological aesthetics, what I meant was like in order to combat the ugliness that has seeped into our culture and mm -hmm. the lack of standards, uh, we need to like reassert uh, the aesthetics of the past and the aesthetics of like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because there was in this was like this was all done like yeah. act actively. This was actively dismantled, and and I've talked about this before with Geo. But if you read uh, uh, Walter Benjamin, well-known communist, one of the godfathers mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. Frankfurt School, uh, if you read the article, the essay of uh, the artwork, what is it in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction? It's indispensable. Everyone needs to read it. I endorse reading that. But mm -hmm. he sets up the whole idea that like aesthetics uh like like beautiful aesthetics is fascist which is yeah like, yeah <laughs> the most maybe he's right oh well, maybe he's right though <laughs> yeah this this but unironically this but unironically yeah right but so yes yes meme yeah but we have to understand though i mean it goes without saying that this was an insidious and pernicious uh chipping away at basically the fabrics and the foundation uh -huh. of culture that and, uh -huh. and it's bearing its its fruit now so when you see like a calvin klein ad with like a 350 pound 
diabetic oh on, my God. on dialysis, yeah. of course, the answer to that, of course, is, you know, uh, an aesthetically pleasing image. But yeah, but what that's not doing, though, what that's not doing is evolving the medium. It's not evolving the genre. It's not evolving art. In order to evolve art, you have to countenance where you are, how you got there mm -hmm. and how you can go forward. And um, I would be uh, I would be uh, criminally <laughs> talking out of my ass if I didn't have examples to back this up with. And I think Zero HP Lovecraft is the type of guy who who proves that what I'm saying is necessary and possible because I think that's what he does. And stumbling mm -hmm. upon his work was one of the most important things like ever to literally ever happen to me in my entire life, because I I was like, it's over. like It's just over. Art is dead. Literature is dead. Yeah. The only hope we have is to look to some other country and right. maybe somebody who hasn't been maybe somebody from a country that hasn't been totally co-opted like ours has uh, will start making like real art. Yeah. And then I found Zero's work and I was like, oh, no. OK, this is what it looks like. And and yeah. I think and I'll, I'll let you go after this because you're the guest and I don't mean to like take up all the time here. But no, I fine. think that Geo understands all that, too. I yeah. think, dude, let me take this opportunity to just tell you that by putting this passage prize together and picking people like Geo and Zero to be the judges, like you clearly know what the fuck you're doing because those guys understand like they, those guys understand like what needs to happen mm -hmm. and they they know what it looks like if they see it happening. So they're like the perfect judges for this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got very lucky in the fact that they were willing to do this because it's a tremendous amount of work that they had to put in. And they, like the actual artists themselves and the people submitting themselves, are under a ton of scrutiny over the choices they made. Um, so they deserve a ton of credit. I, I do want to say that I think both Zero and Bath and, and Bronze Age Mindset, I think, should be looked at as a as a piece of art, it's a piece of, it's not a, it's not a philosophical book. And he says as much explicitly in the intro, it, it could be read almost, it's a genre unto itself. Um, but these are the two most important uh, pieces of literature that have come out of the last, let's just say 10 years, if not longer. 100% they, they do shine a light forward for what this kind of artistic, I hate the word movement, but whatever that means might look like and how it might emerge, it's going to come from voices like, like that. And, and I do want to say one thing that's, that's important and I don't want to like sort of be misunderstood about this is that our classic sense of aesthetics and beauty, you know, pastoralism and, uh, you know, beautiful real to life portraits or whatever. I love that stuff. And I think it's vitally important. And I think is necessarily the foundation for how to construct an art going forward. I have no desire to like reformulate what constitutes the category of beauty or something. I just, I don't think that resigning ourselves to those styles alone will have much lasting value for us. 
I mean, that's it's that's more of a historical project but, than an artistic project. Sorry, it's to jump in here, but yeah, I don't think that will captivate the right kinds and the right numbers of people either. Like, it will be appreciated by yeah. a lot of people, but I don't think it will captivate people. Yeah, it's it it's not. Unfortunately, that kind of art is not the kind of, so we need to like, dis, like, like our world has become disenchanted. Okay. We need to re-enchant the world and, and just returning to those aesthetics doesn't re-enchant the world because there's already a kind, there's that, that there's already an idiom for all of that, that uh, the left knows how to neutralize, first of all. Um, so we're, we're still playing within the game that we're currently in and what we need to do going forward is sort of completely disconnect from the game that we're in like it can't be and, it, and so it can't just be merely art that owns the libs that's also within the frame that we're already in whatever we do if it's going to work ought not sort of own the libs per se uh, mystify them. They'll, they'll be totally like dumbfounded and yeah. won't even know how to talk about it. They won't Baff have a vocabulary so for it. Baff is amazing. Um, exactly. <laughs> yes. They don't have a vocabulary for it. It's not within this like understood idiom. And so that's one of the issues with like even like vaporwave stuff. It's like cool. I like it, but it uh it it doesn't break out. It doesn't disconnect um from the sort of this pre-constructed game that we're already in. So anyway, that that's, I just, you know, returning to the, the past, it's just, it's, it's too constrained. That would be my critique of, of that um, alone. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. And it's like so reaffirming to see that the guy behind the passage prize, like has this entire like vision, but also this like understanding of, of the scenario we're in. Like you couldn't, you couldn't do this with like with somebody with like a kind of like a stale aesthetic, uh, stale aesthetic um, appreciation. You could if you so, but it but it but it can be just driven by intuition. I mean, you don't need to have like a, a, a like this real theory behind it. I mean, no. One thing right. I love about this space we're in is like so much of what is understood to be like correct and true is driven by just these good instincts. Uh, the intuitions of the kind of people who are drawn to our spaces, like there, you know, there's like this biological fact about, you know, our, um, our, our sphere and, and it, it operates almost on intuition as much as, is anything else, which yeah. is, which is good, which is, this is my way of deflecting from the very uh, flattering words you're saying about me. Well, no, but see, the point I want to make, though, is that it would have probably like fucked it up or made it too self-aware if you like put a dissertation like on the Passage Prize like website, mm -hmm. like of what you just said, you know, like the the miss the mission statement on the Passage Prize website is perfect because it's like culture's fake and gay now and we need to make a real one. Um, yeah, yeah. You put some version of that on there. Mm -hmm. If you had like laid it out and like analyzed it like this i think it kind of would have like probably scared some people away who yeah who, who have good instincts but like don't have the the language or the uh the training or whatever 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 have you but listen i was planning on doing a one part one and two 
And I was going to bracket the discussion of art and the discussion of politics in, into the two different parts. But something came uh-huh. up and I have to take the break now instead of later. So um, if you if you can hang on a minute, sure. uh, we're going to have a little musical interlude and then we'll come back for nice. two and we'll finish on um, aesthetics and then we'll segue into politics and uh, uh, we'll do it that way. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Yep. Yep. such a role about the passage prize and just the importance of art and culture in quote unquote political movement, because I uh, said recently that I feel subjected to politics. Like what I really care about is art and culture. And like, I just want to hang out and like talk about ideas and books. And I just feel like the communists just keep like intervening on my Mm -hmm. life, life or the life of others and fucking it up but also like the enjoyment of culture isn't what it once was um the 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 stuff being produced is so paused by the the woke ideology that it's like mm-hmm. you can't even enjoy it and it's like it's just like eyesore that they insert these eyesores in order to like really what they're doing is like tokenism and the mm-hmm. crazy part to me is that people of color know when they're being pandered to and they know yeah. it's tokenism. And, you know, for my personal experience, I'm really going off on a totally different tangent than where I wanted to take this. But uh, I'll just invite you to re- reply with your thoughts on, on this, what I'm saying. Sure. Uh, my personal experience has always been like if I talked to, we'll say a black person, but really any non-white person that like they're resentful, not of the things the right says they're resentful for. They're resentful of being pandered to by liberals and like used as a token and like being the token black friend or seeing the token, you know, black actor in a show or a movie that like mm-hmm. shouldn't really be there. And like, mm-hmm. those are the things that annoy them. However, if you go online and read, uh, uh, you know, someone's tweets, uh, be it a white liberal or a person of color, you go read their tweets or you watch what they're saying on, on MSNBC and CNN. They're like, not, only are they lapping it up, mm-hmm. but they're demanding more of it. And, you know, 
once you like become red pilled to sound really really cringe <laughs> to like use yeah. the term in like a self-aware way like you don't see it for what it really is at first you know you you don't see it for like the cultural engineering and like the the browbeating that it actually is in my opinion i mean i want to know if you agree um or if you if, you know obviously there's more to it but yeah well i think in like all cases Anytime you have a, a like a class of people, be it like an ethnic class or even like a economic class or whatever, however you want to like categorize uh, different groups of people, there are the preferences and beliefs, the, the sort of modal preferences and beliefs of that category of people. And then there are the preferences and beliefs of the spokespeople uh, on behalf of those groups, like the public facing uh, spokespeople. So you have like the black pundit or like, the Jewish pundit or whatever, uh, like the, the working class pundit who presumes to speak on behalf of that group and rarely ever do their actual preferences and beliefs align in any kind of like one-to-one -one way with the, the category of people they ostensibly represent. And I think, what, so what that speaks to, I think, I mean, I'm just, you know, coming up with this now as i as i think about it is that um it's because like all these disparate classes of people left to their own devices would follow sort of sort of follow certain behavioral preferences and tendencies that does not produce necessarily the kind of society that that pundit class that spokesperson class wants to live in you know it'd be like segregated and like certain natural okay or or certain hierarchies would kind of would arise and constitute themselves um within those groups which they largely do anyway though though they can be kind of um manipulated uh with with certain kinds of like political coercion but um and so that's where the disconnect is. There's a kind of like um, society that, that the pundit class wants to live in and believes we should live in, have some like, there's like some, uh, you know, there's like a Whig history element to this where the, the belief that that society will exist. So it's aspirational, but they kind of think that it's inevitable that we'll get there. And so they're kind of like trying to speed it along, even though it's at the, um, probably to the detriment of the groups they represent, but also in defiance of what they actually want, like what these people actually want. So uh, if, if I'm understanding your observation correctly, you know, I agree with that. And I can, you know, I'm not going to pretend to like have some special insight into like uh, average black psychology or something. Um, but it would not surprise me at all if there was a great deal of resentment towards the sort of chattering classes um, imposed preferences for them, including this kind of like token representation. I'm, I, have you seen this? <laughs> I was recently watching this show, Last Kingdom, which is yeah, like this. It's another on... one of these like Viking shows, okay? And uh, there's like a season, I think it was, it was like filmed in like 2018, the year of Floyd, okay? And all of a sudden, there's just these like random black characters, um, 
like like there's like this <laughs> it's never explained how these like presumably africans like got to medieval england and uh they're just like at the dining hall you know they, they don't even have like speaking roles most of the time and it, you just think to yourself what who is this serving who is this for i mean obviously i know who it's for it's for the you know the casting directors need this the directors have to have these certain quotas or else netflix won't sort of finance their projects you know this is being imposed from above obviously and then they like uh come up with this justification for themselves that this is like a good moral thing for them to do but but you do have to ask is there any actual value to this to your like modal black person who is now watching this viking show that has this black unexplicably black character sitting at the end of this dining hall bench um you know while they're where they're talking about like king alfred or whatever uh so yeah it, it, it all seems rather absurd yeah and uh, we could get a lot uh that was a tangent but we could get a lot of material out of that but i i refer everyone to tommy sotomayor i i uh -huh. harbor no ill will against him for blocking me on twitter <laughs> <laughs> because he he has Dang, man. he had a space and he's he said, uh, <laughs> all right, Astral, I'm going to give you the mic because I raised my hand. He's like, but if you're not a black woman, I'm going to block you immediately. And then I said like three words and he blocked me. But um, he, he talks about this a lot, though. And uh -huh. he basically says that it's like women doing this. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. But anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, it is. It's, you know, yeah. women and then like the spiritual women. Right. Who, uh, who rule who, these institutions? Who mostly, in my estimation, go along with it. I think that they're yeah. mostly just being led 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 around by their lapels. But uh, but we have to we have to make a make a somewhat uh, un unnatural change in conversation because that was totally a tangent. I don't even know why I went on that, but I'm glad I did. But what I wanted to say though, to carry over from part one, was what you were saying uh, about like memes and like the power of memes and, and fast wave and vapor wave and everything you were saying about geo, um, uh, not geo in total, but geo's decision on why mm -hmm. he picked a deep fried meme as a part three and, and maybe his defense of that. I look forward to reading it. It's great. Yeah. 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 Uh, we, I might, maybe I should post it. I should probably post it. But yeah, yeah go ahead. you should post it. I mean, we got so into discussing what we wanted to discuss that, like, I didn't get to do any of the formal stuff I meant to do because there's so much to talk about. But uh, there is a Passage Prize book coming out. When do you think that'll be? Yeah. Um, so we have the final proofs that we're, we're just getting through right now. There's going to head off to the printer in the next week. Nice. It'll be four weeks, four to six weeks until they're printed. But the NFT will go on sale as soon as we get those final files. in. so probably like May, mid, mid May. So we're getting really close to that. And then um, the book then, so that's going to be the NFT hardcover limited edition. We're going to do that. We're going to follow that model that zero used. Yeah. And I'm going to use all the proceeds. So first of all, let me just clarify. I'm not making any money on this. Okay. Like maybe people think this is like a cash out or something. Every single dollar that I get, I'm, I'm like, what, despite all the great, um, contributions i'm like in the hole on this and uh i am gonna take every single dollar that i make from this nft sale and it's gonna immediately just go into the prize pool for the second contest and so awesome. that's that's largely what people are going to be funding is just 
I need to pay off like the people who helped me. I got to pay off all the artists and everything else. And, um, and then I'm just going to start the next one with, with the proceeds. So then I'm going to, I'm going to do that with the NFT and then we're going to publish a paperback version sometime later in the summer. Um, that's going to have all like the same content, but it's just, it's not going to have like limited edition gold stamping and all that fancy stuff. Like, um, and I'm going to be selling that on a, on a new website. So I'm starting, I'm going to, I'm going to start, I'm starting a press, um, using the passage as like momentum to go forward. And I'm going to be publishing over the next like three years. Um, I'm sort of formulating the exact plan, but in addition to passage prize, we're going to be publishing one old American classics that I think are, um, either sort of have been forgotten or neglected for a variety of reasons. And, and we're going to make really nice, like hardcover versions of that. I'm going to be publishing new stuff from people like Zero or other people in our sphere who are writing good literature. And then um, I'm going to be doing like political philosophy and sort of, I guess you could say, uh, um, like, online writing, anthologizing online writing. So our first book actually is going to be um, a print hardback two volume edition of Unqualified Reservations. And uh, I've got an agreement from Curtis to do that. And so that will be uh, probably in the winter. It's going to be a huge uh, project. It's a massive undertaking because of all of the references in that book and like converting or in, in that, um, on that blog and converting like online writing back into print writing is something that really hasn't been done, uh, not at that level. So we're kind of inventing a genre here and it's gonna take some time and some complex like design and layout work to do it right. And we wanna get it right. That's more important than getting it out fast. And, uh, and so that's, that's also on the horizon um, for what's coming next. and. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, we're counting on people being interested in this, which I think they will just natively uh, because it's, we're going to be putting out good work. Um, but any people should know, like if you're buying the Passage Prize book or that paperback, that's what this is all going to be funding. Okay. I am beside myself with excitement and elation right now. I had no idea. Have you... <laughs> Have you announced this yet? I, never I have not. Done. This is this is my announcement. This so is... all of this has happened in like the last week. Okay. I've like, I just, I, I kind of taken a look around and realizing that, that there's a need for this. And uh, uh, I thought, why not? So um, I, uh, I put the word out to a few people um, to get some initial funding for this. Cause there's, there's a lot of overhead that goes into a project like this. And uh, I have a normie day job. And so, um, you know, there's, you know, need for money. And, um, and so, so I got enough to get started. I got enough to get started. And, um, and, and yeah, this is the announcement. Passage Press coming to a, a website near you. This is, ex this is exactly what needs to happen, man. I'm like, I'm just blown away. I'm blown over. And uh, I can't really... <laughs> even express right now uh i want to like scream and like open a yeah beer. great man uh, yeah so um this is i'm perfect. glad to hear that I'm, I'm glad to hear that reaction because 
you know, you're, you're trying something new. You're not sure, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking a pretty big leap with this per, from like a personal level. And um, it's, it's a bit of a leap of faith and it's something I want to see in the world. And so it's, it's definitely validating to know that other people are interested in this sort of thing. And I have all sorts of ideas for the kind of classics I want to print and other kinds of things I want to print. Um, and, I, and I plan on in, including a novel contest along with Passage Prize. Uh, and this is really about, again, so it's, it's providing a space for talent that already exists and, and that just lacks um, an outlet to have their stuff published or lacks like a centralized outlet. I mean, anybody can self-publish, but that stuff kind of gets scattered to the winds and it's hard to keep track of it all. We want to sort of consolidate all of this great stuff that's being put together on our side and, and at least uh, have like a clearinghouse for all the good writing um, that's going on. But it's also about cultivating new talent. And um, that's something that takes time. You know, we were talking about with Passage Prize, like in how Zero said, a lot of these people, they're writing short stories for their first time ever. And you can tell they're kind of crude and mechanically, I don't want to say sophomore, that's too harsh, but um, it's like naive art. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, people, these, these people are, they're, they're amateurs, they're dilettantes. Um, and I don't mean that pejoratively. I just, it's a, as a matter of fact, well, and they need time to grow and, and, and they need time in the space to sort of cultivate this talent. And so that's one thing we're going to do is try to provide that space for, for talent, you know, plan, it, we're, we're planting a garden here. It's vitally important. And um, there, there is precedent for all of this. Not, not like with like this, like conservative underground sort of alt-right thing or whatever, but precedents for the projects you're taking on. Um, and it manifested itself in different ways in the past so yeah. there's clearly there's all these small presses that were giving people uh, an outlet and a voice. Um, yeah. People like uh, I always the go to example is Bukowski. But there's a whole mm -hmm. movement. There's a whole movement. But um, yeah, even more recently, I mean, like something like McSweeney's. Yeah, it's this kind of I know, like fey cringe thing. Okay? Yeah, I know. Nobody would ever want to like compare themselves to it. But just structurally. Right. What they built is very meaningful and they had a, a outsized impact on like literary culture for at least a yeah, decade or a couple negative, decades. It was negative though. It was negative. Yes, uh, I ultimately. totally agree. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Or like Verso books is another example. I know. Verso. But, but again, but it's like all lefties doing this and uh, right. there's no reason it has to be that way. Verso man and zero books had potential and they were good in the beginning. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, so like the 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 noobs, you know, the writers coming in like and mm -hmm. and and zero saying I see it was zero who was saying this, but I can't remember where I heard him say it either on his own show. Uh, so we're promoting zero's podcast here. Yeah, which you um, should all listen to. It might have been a guest appearance he had where he was saying all that. And so what what they do like traditionally is these like writers workshops where uh -huh. uh, people get together and they sit around a table and uh they they read each other's work and they give each other tips but and i i have a i have an, a, a degree in writing and that's what it was it was like mm -hmm. all day sitting around the table doing that with poetry and short stories mm -hmm. but like even those have become a tool for like woke ideology and let's <laughs> let's be honest they were infiltrated by like liberal women 
and like mm-hmm. m- middle-aged or, or, or pre-middle-aged, like pre-menopausal, like mm-hmm. a, a woman in her late twenties or early thirties is pre-middle-aged, like <laughs> in her fifties mm-hmm. is pre-menopausal. Anyway, I'm, I'm directly referencing, like, I'm not talking on my ass here, Chuck Palahniuk, his appearance yeah. on Joe Rogan. Did you hear that? No, I didn't oh, hear dude, it. Dude, you, you got to listen to it. Everybody who's interested in literature needs to listen to it because he talks a lot about the, the workshop, uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, culture around literature mm-hmm. and, and how fucked it's gotten. And mm-hmm. um, you may have heard the term. It's kind of like a a, 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 a standard you know, phrase to say in writing circles. Like, um, I think Chuck even uses it. Palinuk even uses it in the episode where he says like, oh, this would normally be workshopped out. Like, mm-hmm. like if you're reading somebody's book, uh, Rough Draft, and you say, mm-hmm. uh, well, this would normally be workshopped out, but I think you should keep it in for X, Y, and Z reasons. And he yeah. talks about how, like, the things that are workshopped out now are, yeah. are like, sexual, like, no, like, like normative sexuality or sexual. Yeah. When I say normative sexuality, of course, I mean from a man's point of view or, yeah. or, 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 you know, in Chuck Palahniuk's case, like brutal sexuality, because he's got some stuff in his books yeah. that is like uh, his is pretty like uh, gory sexuality. I don't know if you've read the book Haunted, but um, yeah, he, tried, he talks about how they tried to take, get him to take one of those stories out. And it was like too much and how the workshops were like scandalized. And <laughs> he talks about um, that movie Wild. And there's a book called Wild by Cheryl Strayed and how. Uh-huh. They made her take a bunch of shit out. And obviously they didn't make her take a bunch of shit out, but like they suggest, and it was like really powerful stuff that would have made the book like so much better, but like way less marketable. And yeah. like, so, so everything that's happening, just like I said about, uh, about, about Walter Benjamin talking about like fascist art aesthetics, like this is all manufactured. This is all being done on purpose. And yeah. so we need, just just imagine like a 19 year old who's already had some like like a 19 year old straight white man who's already had like some really intense life experiences and uh he wants to write it in in you know the ne- he writes the next on the road and then he takes it mm-hmm. to one of these workshops and these like 32 year old spinsters fuck yeah dude, yeah it's a fucking crime yeah. yeah so no it's a major problem um and it and exists and has existed in in sort of prestige literature for a long time and and even before like explicit wokeness you know there was a kind of like style emerging among all these pieces of literature like this kind of what might be called like iowa style you know iowa writers workshop is like uh maybe yeah yeah yeah. dennis um these workshops dennis johnson yeah absolutely And, and tons of great writers have come out of it dennis johnson is one of the i mean he is if not at the top of my list pretty damn near close but at least in the last, let's say, 20 years or so, there's a certain style that it's emerged out of these workshops um, that's just, it, it's very boring. And it's, it, it, ha- it, it preferences a certain, again, it's, it's, it's not like a, a particular ideology per se, but it's a particular attitude towards what literature is and can be, which is this very inward kind of navel gazing. Um, you know, it's, uh, the, the, the smells in Nana's kitchen, you know, like 
that's it. That's like the, 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 the whole value of this literary experience is, is existing in this very like sort of mundane, mundane interiority and like very domestic, very longhouse, okay, is, is what it's become. But this is now, this is also true though, beyond literature, this is reminding me of a podcast I listened to or an interview I listened to with David Chase uh, of Sopranos fame. And he was talking about how having made whatever the Newark movie is, the, the Sopranos movie. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was talking to these Amazon executives about, a, about an idea he had for a script or something. I can't remember if it was Sopranos related or something else. And in the script, there's this woman, this like high powered kind of like career girl bossy sort of figure who like sleeps her way to the top of this company or like uses sex as a way to leverage her career prospects. And the Amazon executives told him he couldn't use that. Now, this is like David Chase. OK, this is like um, maybe the most powerful like person in TV. And he's being told by these like. HR influence executives at Amazon that they won't finance a project in which a woman uses her sexuality in order to like leverage her career, which is, which is totally insane. I mean, there's no way to produce anything of value under these kinds of constraints and limitations. It's just so narrow what's allowed in. And then you add on top of that, the, the censor, like literal censor, like there are these like diversity readers that exist. So when you, yeah, when you want to publish a novel, you send it over to a publishing house, an editor takes a look at it, and then they send it along to this like department where some like uh, diversocrat sits there and like underlines any instance in which you've discussed a black or like, you know, queer character or something. And like tells you as the writer what this character can and can't do or can and can't say in, in your novel. I mean, it's totally insane uh, that this stuff happens, but, but it does. But and it it's real. And what's going on, like what like the, the, the reality that people, especially young people coming up in it who didn't watch it happen like I did and maybe you did. Um, yeah. What they're finding themselves in an artificially constructed environment that uh it's not like the the cultural zeitgeist was going this way it was like forced into this and like as far as i'm concerned um feminism like at some point it lost its like true vision and mission to like empower women yeah and it turned into this like hammer that they're using to hammer the square peg of american culture into a round hole of like ideological yeah. feminism and I, to, to your point, someday I, I, I've thinking, I've, I've been thinking about doing a deep dive on this, but I'll mention it um, sort of in passing right now is to your point, there's this thing called, there's this group, this like, like, I guess, there, I guess you would call it a consulting firm called the Gina Davis Institute of like women in film. Have you heard about this? <laughs> no, Dude, it is the epitome. <laughs> it is the epitome of of the 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 communism is a biological uh-huh. con- condition and and, uh-huh, this, uh-huh. and and the culture of resentment because Gina oh, yeah. davis of course is like a failed a-list actor 
who was like yeah, yeah. young and gorgeous and on the ascent and like like positioned to like be like the next Michelle Pfeiffer or whatever. And then something happened and the bottom fell out and she made a couple flops and she was never able to recover. And suddenly she turns up with this like consulting firm called the Gina Davis Institute of like representation of women in film mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they do exactly what you just said. Like they mm-hmm. uh, what, what was the word you called it? Like uh, representative and inclusion, you know, agents. Yeah, th- yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and they'll be like, you know, this this woman is a stereotype. You need to change it. Uh-huh. And this this is a sexist comment. And there's not enough female uh, leads or, or, or female yeah. uh, supporting actresses. And the other thing I want to say, too, like I wasn't really going to um, elaborate on it, but 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 I feel like it's relevant now to, in response to what you said, like what Chuck Palahniuk was talking about, Cheryl Strayed's book, Wild. Um, it's actually a, a good book in a way, but I'm not going to make the case for it here in the, in the movie. But, but here's the thing about that book and that movie. There's a phase in the middle of her life where she is sleeping around like crazy and shooting heroin. Mm-hmm. And the way it's presented is that like she is like, sowing her wild oats and like embracing her like sexuality as a woman and like also like flirting with danger and then she like grows out of that phase and like individuates into this like woman who like hikes the hikes the trail and then becomes like a mother and a wife and dedicated and and that's all well and good but it's decontextualized because chuck palinuk talks about the part that the and he was in the writer's workshop where they did this Mm-hmm. The thing that they took out was graphic descriptions of being sexually abused as a child. And like, mm. I, I, I think that what they what they did was like a, an egregious misservice, mis- disservice to, to people and women and the American public, because they are using this woman who like has talent, who mm-hmm. wrote this book. That was like supposed to be like her, like overcoming, you know, that experience as a child. And they turned Mm -hmm. it into like fodder for like Mm -hmm. the girl boss, like, you know, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they they totally like whatever. So, so. yeah, well, you know, a lot of this is uh, sanitizing the pathologies that are sort of inherent in you know, our, our, our culture and, and, and the, the particular way that it's organized and, and the kind of like, especially the sexual, the, the, the adverse effects of the kind of um, sexual libertinism that arose right. alongside feminism and all of the things that that has wrought for not just women, but just society in general and, and like how that's degraded um, so much else that has, you know, like as, at, at a secondary level that it touches. And so you allied, you know, here's, you know, this is just my like sort of speculation, how much of this is self-conscious or not, but, but alighting the, the, uh, her, uh, sexual abuse is a way to like get around the very difficult and uncomfortable consequences of, how sort of unmoderated sexuality and and like perverse sexuality can lead to all sorts of like long-term chronic damage um for these individuals so then like the yeah so then the heroin use is just like presented as this uh 
I don't know, like a priori impulse, like she just kind of like spontaneously, spontaneously came to, you know, there's like, um, yeah. And, and so, so A, so what does that mean? So A, it's like, um, it's avoiding any kind of confrontation with like these difficult problems and like difficult trade-offs uh, about like what, what you want to allow from a societal level and, and its effects. But then it's also, it, it like uncomplicates what is like a very complicated uh, like causal pathway from her sexual abuse to this heroin addiction to becoming like this girl boss or whatever. And um, therefore is bad art uh, because, it, because it like removes this important element um, and uncomplicates it. Like it, it becomes simpler and cruder and, and um, less interesting therefore. You know, so it, so it's like bad from it, it's bad on all levels, and and also it's untrue, you know, and, and the fact that it's untrue is bad in its own right. It's just inherent makes it inherently bad. And yeah, so I you think see it's this like propaganda. It's basically sexual libertine yeah. propaganda. Go on though. I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt. No, you. no. And so that and so, but but and that's it. Like, you know, our modern kind of like uh, cultural output. What what counts for legacy or mainstream cultural output all has this quality. And I think fundamentally, it's it's the quality of being untrue, either in what it neglects, um, or in how it lies about the consequences of certain kinds of, you know, social cultural uh, infrastructure and incentives, you know, that come from that have largely come from, in my view, this this sort of like liberation, lefty liberation movement. Um, that has really become the sort of pre predominant uh, cultural and, and um, sort of political mode since I guess the 60s, if not before, but certainly then. While I agree with the, with the general perception that these movements like the leftist uh, radical movements um, from you know, the 60s to now were probably corrupt from the start, um, I do think they mutated in the last 12 to 15 years, we'll say. Uh, and I think it mm -hmm. happened like with the millennial generation, because I think the ideas had just been like washed and laundered through like so many generations of people by the time it got to them that it like, like raised this, this uh, generation of people who are like going to inherit. I have this whole like, generational uh, theory on like mm -hmm. how we got here but i i almost think that the millennials who had taken up the lingo of wokeism mm -hmm. which they got from academics are like being raised in this like cultural vacuum and that is that is um uh, mutating the 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 countercultural movement into this like <laughs> this beast that is just tearing everything down and like they said from the beginning that that was their intention but like what uh -huh. it has become is like just it's been totally co-opted by the state yeah. and yeah and i think someone somewhere along the line at least in the older generations would say no 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 it wasn't supposed to be like <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be like handed down uh, through the heavy hand of the state and through like large corporations, but you know, everybody, I just, well, yeah, I made a tweet the other day, um, something along, I'm not going to get the exact phrasing, right. But like, 
the, the leftist machinery we see today is not being driven by the like cunning political operatives who built it. Right. Um, it's, it's their, you know, drunk on entitlement children exactly. who, you know, are going to drive the Porsche into a tree. Um, hopefully anyway, and, and, uh, kill everyone inside. Although some people rightly pointed out that we're inside the car with them. So that might not be so good, but nonetheless, I think your, your critique is right that, um, there is a distinct, a very clear and distinct difference in the quality of mind and just like the, the kind of shrewdness of the people who built this thing versus the people who control it now. And, um, the, the exact quality of that difference is a little elusive to me. I mean, I think they're like less intelligent. I think that's exactly. just obviously the case. Exactly. But there's also, but there's something else too. There's a certain kind of like recklessness or lack of forbearance where like the, like the lefties or, or, you know, what might be part of it too, is the lefties who built this thing were kind of subaltern, at least at the start, they were out, they were the outsiders. They, they did not, they were the insurgents. And so they were operating from a different set of like sort of strategic and tactical principles. And that kind of sharpened uh, how they went about things because they, they weren't in positions of such explicit hard power that they're in now. And, uh, and so maybe that's a difference too. It's just their, their positioning relative to the levers of power um, makes, makes a critical difference in, in how they operate and the kind of rec recklessness that ensues from just having total control and feeling sort of invincible. That's absolutely correct. And I just need to clarify and like reiterate that uh, I I'm aware that these people had what I consider and what I'm sure you and all of our friends consider to be ill intentions from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But but it is a different thing. It's a different it's a different beast for sure. Now, yeah, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but like, no, no, no. Uh, I mean, like Sailor Sailor makes in his way that makes which, which is what makes Sailor so great is like it's just very straightforwardly that the Jews of the mid-century who built this machinery were just like maybe even like a full standard deviation smarter uh, than, the, you know, in terms of IQ um, than, than, their, than their children, essentially. And, and that's like, or like th that um, the kind of diversity bureaucracy that they built underneath this kind of like, um, superstructure to like support this superstructure reduced the kind of um, average IQ of these institutions by essentially a full standard deviation. So rather than being controlled by a group of like elite Jews, they're now controlled by, you know, just this kind of like very average stew of diversocrats. Well, that's the sailor theory. And I think, I mean, it, it's, uh, got a lot to uh, recommend it. Another way I would put it is I mentioned the Frankfurt School, like they were a mm. bunch of communists. So it, but yeah. here's the thing, though, if you read the Frankfurt School, um, of which I haven't in any comprehensive way, but I've read several of them, several authors from that from that group, uh, there is a lot 
there's a lot of essential, I mean, absolutely essential, what I would call mandatory critique and analysis of art that is uh-huh. totally indispensable. And you have to be able to uh, excise the communism from it because, because the communism in the early stuff, in my opinion, is sort of inserted into it. It's, mm-hmm. it's like embedded in this greater critique and analysis of art that is like indispensable. But now... Uh, there's there's like like the people, you know, I guess you would the, the phrase you'd call them now is the critical race people or like the critical thinking. Or the, I mean, excuse me, mm-hmm. the critical. Uh, what was it before it was critical race? It was critical uh, something. The, critical the post, studies. Yeah. The postmodernists, the post. Yeah, yeah. Like we are getting the Frankfurt School like through the prism of the postmodernists. And whenever we have now like the critical race people. There's, yeah, there's nothing redeeming in them. It's badly diluted. What I'm trying to say. There's yeah. like it's like it's totally yeah. You can throw the whole thing out. I actually just tweeted today that like yeah. there's like a whole era that needs to just be flushed down the toilet. Um, yeah. So like there, that that's yeah. kind of how I would put what you said about Sailor. So there's a there's a funny anecdote that I've shared before um, about uh, Baudrillard went to American oh, yeah. universities on like a speaking tour at one point. And um, one thing he said was that, you know, how Americans just like loved all this continental theory. And, and uh, one thing he, he said it, it, on the speaking tour that he was shocked that Americans, in particular, like American academics and like younger generations of American academics, took all this continental theory literally and seriously, rather than as merely a provocation, which is how it was intended that these are like, these ideas are tended to provoke towards like new ways of thinking and that they're, that they didn't have such like a literal or revolutionary bent, but like these American academics didn't have the kind of sophistication yeah. to think about them in that way. It's so and ridiculous. so took all these ideas seriously and tried to like implement them as if they were uh, a kind of like formal system of how to run institutions and construct a culture. And like, I think we're seeing the, the effects of that. Uh, and it is honestly, it is just a kind of like, I hate to be so crass about it, but like stupidity. It, it's just an inability to think um, in a complicated way about these ideas that they're presented with. They're like, uh, like American, there's this, <laughs> I'm really going on a tangent now, but there's this um, maybe apocryphal story about, uh, um, uh, what is it like um, United Fruit Company or whatever, they were trying yeah. to clear some um, jungle like in Brazil and the way that, but there were all these like native inhabitants in this jungle and they couldn't just go like liquidate these people that would just look bad. And so what they did was they dropped all of this like literal bags of like unrefined sugar onto these people and they all like died of, you know, diabetes and like, um, you know, sugar consumption. I don't know how like true this is or whatever, but it, but it's like a similar kind of thing where they're, they're like too stupid to know what they're doing and what the effects of this poison will have on them. And they're just attracted to the sugar. And that's kind of how this continental philosophy has been presented to American academics and what they've done with it. And, um, 
they've just OD'd on it, you know, gotten high on their own supply and, and that's the end of it. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, the, the term I was having a brain fart on is just critical theory. Like critical, yeah, critical theory, theory. Yeah. In, evolved into critical race and critical. So it's, it's, it's so ridiculous to me that that happened, what you're saying, because if you go back and read the, the stuff that the left embraces and, and parrots and mimics and the right mm-hmm. uh, 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 condemns in no uncertain terms, like uh, Derrida and uh, mm-hmm. Deleuze and Guattari and others, Foucault is kind of not quite in that camp because he's, he was ideological and he was trying to like yeah. sneak, sneak some, uh, some bad ideas in through the back door, uh, pun intended. But, uh, yeah, yeah, but if you go read like Deleuze and, and some of those other guys, Derrida, it's so clear what they're trying to express. Cause I've read these uh-huh. guys and they're really fucking yeah. good. And it's so yeah. clear that they're not uh, intending what they're trying to do, in my opinion, is create, uh like 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 tools uh Mm -hmm. conceptual tools that once you like get them in your mind you can use them to like to like build a picture of the world and it's almost like uh the 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 sort of hackneyed sort of uh ridiculous argument about guns it's like (laughs) it's like somebody picks it up and uses it for the because it's a powerful tool and Mm -hmm. uh someone who doesn't really deserve to have a weapon like that because they're not going to use it responsibly uh, uh finds it laying around and goes off and, and totally clears house with it um chomsky has a really good and i don't endorse chomsky but he's right about a couple things here and there maybe maybe he's a broken clock type of guy uh but his critique he hates the continental philosophers and i think yeah. what he says about them is true about the people who've taken it up and i think it's a reflection of what you're saying it's like another way to say what you're saying is he, he th- these people who are like too stupid really to do anything like constructive in the world, they find uh, these books lying around and mm-hmm. using that terminology makes them feel smart. And yes. because they feel like inadequate in the face of engineers and scientists uh-huh. and doctors, uh-huh. they can't do any of that stuff. And they feel inadequate in the face of like a real artist. So instead what they can do is like pick up these little, you know, fancy neologisms and throw them around and uh, pretend like they're smart. Yeah. It's a uh, lot I, of midwittery kind of way of what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Midwittery. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, and that's, and that's what just sort of dominates going back to like one of the first points I think we made in this conversation, what dominates academia these days is this pervasive midwittery. It, it's just everywhere you look and whether that's motivated by feelings of inadequacy it may be the case and, and, and certainly is the case in some level, but I, I don't know. It's just, it, it's also just the kind of like intellect that academia attracts in the current year. And, um, you know, yeah. So the, you well, know, the, the other thing to be said about like Derrida too, though, is like, it's also just, it, 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 it is a tool. And, and if to the extent you want to use it, you just have to think about how it might serve some other like, interest you have it's not a totalizing philosophy it's, it's not like a unified theory of the world and how it works or how knowledge works it's not like a unified epistemic or linguistic theory at all it it i mean i think even derrida might just be even in his own words it's he considers himself more a poet 
I mean, he, he, he means that in the Greek sense, but just that his work is, I think, is just largely, primarily vain self-expression, as, as any artist would also maybe be such uh, so categorized, that, that it's not like knowledge production in any meaningful sense. Um, it's, just, it, it's just a kind of like playfulness with language and ideas and demonstrating through that playfulness uh, some of the limitations on what language can actually explain about the world and how it works, something like that. I think that's very true, and it's true of uh, Deleuze as well and Guattari as well. Um, the, the book, their books are so self-indulgent that they should uh-huh. be like a third the length that they are. But yeah. uh, and you know, I'm aware that these guys are all communists, and like uh, and and Derrida, like we can get into his character and and how that sort of prevents him from really being objective. But uh, I won't. But I mm-hmm. I want to say though that like. I, I do think these guys and Gio Gio's always like banging on about this. Like, I do think these people have an indispensable critique of the evolution of art, especially over the 20th century um, mm-hmm. that, that needs to be like taken seriously. So I just need to make the disclaimer that when I throw a name out, like Derrida, like, trust me, I'm like well aware of the problems there and uh, on the side of the people who denounce him, Mm-hmm. but uh you know i have read him and did get value from him and barth like barth like makes me sick but um you should probably read him <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah yeah well so listen we um i gotta uh i gotta just make a tradition here of of bullying my bully siding my guests into coming back because like i have a whole <laughs> list of shit to talk about that we didn't get to which is fine though because the stuff we did get to was great and needed needed to needed to happen i i am like so grateful that i inadvertently was able to have all the guests and the like the producer the mind behind the passage prize on my show because um i think if you you know back three four years ago where i was alone uh, mm-hmm. looking at the world and realizing that I was in the middle of a fucking desert and like mm-hmm. no one could hear me scream like here I am now talking to you like you're doing the thing that wasn't being done that was making me so you know forlorn about American culture so like to be able to be involved by by talking with you guys is like s- such a privilege for me that I can't even uh, I can't even express it and um yeah i just thank you guys so much for like i hope i hope it's good that i'm giving you guys like a platform to like sort of elaborate on this stuff and try to hopefully this propagates more of this in the future and hopefully you know i said to yarvin we were i forgot what he said but i responded by saying like maybe in 10 years we'll be meeting in las vegas at like the 10th anniversary passage prize party (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know what i mean why not i mean sure let's do it let's let's uh let's book it i mean that's the kind of thing where well you know this is a whole other conversation we don't have time to get into but there's going to be some critical juncture at which online discourse art whatever culture will have some bridge to real life and the kinds of like actual communal gathering that ultimately is necessary 
for anything of, you know, real lasting value. So, you know, I, I, you may say that as a joke, but I wouldn't be shocked if something like that happened. Oh, I really, really want it to happen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Listen, actually, you that uh, bring up something that is the perfect note to take us out on. So I'm going to ask you to uh, uh, swear on your life that you'll be coming back when the book is out and we'll, <laughs> revisit all this. Yeah, no, actually, I would love to. I would love yeah, to talk about this because like, I'm the only one who's really seen everything in there yeah. and seen the full picture of it. And to me, it makes like sense and it's coherent. And I think it's great. I think people are going to really enjoy it. And I think it's going to be the kind of thing that people are going to want to have on their shelves. And it, I, I truly, I'm not just shilling here. I think it's, it's like a valuable, it's a very valuable book. Um, and so, but I'm, I'm really anxious for other people to read it and then have a chance to like talk about the specific content of it. Um, you know, with, with you. So I would love to do that. And Astral, I really appreciate everything you're saying about Passage Prize. That means a lot. Uh, we're all kind of lonely travelers. And so getting this kind of affirmation and validation from people is, uh, is really meaningful and, uh, and sustains us, sustains me. So thank you. Good, good. You're welcome. I wanted to talk about egregore, which I kind of think is like a silly term now. It's kind of been used to death, but uh, we'll we'll save that for next time because Great. I, when I conceived of this show, like I didn't even know you, like I had never talked to you before. Yeah. And when I conceived of the show, like the thing that I wanted to showcase didn't exist yet. And I got the show <laughs> up and running and like you made it like happen on your own, you know, and like it's just too, I don't know. It's just, if you know what egregore means, then I don't need I to. I do. To yeah, sure. Well, I, yeah. I was talking to the audience though. So look, I want oh, you to, oh. I, no, no, but, but it's okay. I'm sorry. I'm, um, I'm running out of time, but I want you to take us out on this last thought and uh, we'll, okay. end, we'll end it here. You said you hope that this is a bridge to real life. And uh, another tweet you made, that's one of my favorite tweets is you said that a good example of like memes having an effect on the real world is the green line thing. Like, the, <laughs> like it's like the green, and this is my, now I'm paraphrasing. You didn't say it exactly like this, but the way I understand it, it's like the green lines were always there. Yeah. And, 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 and it took an artist, we'll call him an artist uh, because yeah. the question is in there are meme makers artists. And I think they are, it took an artist to like, see them for what they are and 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 manifest them in reality and put them out yeah. there and now that it's done that it's become a real thing and i think that um i think that what we're doing like that's why cult that's why we have to do culture and art and not politics in my opinion so so i'll give you the the last word uh, on that thought yeah okay so that's that's exactly right and i think that is exactly what artists do which is you're recovering these things that exist beyond the veil of our sort of present understanding of reality and you're pulling them into reality. You're making them manifest in, in reality so, such that other people can sort of see and experience these things, be they ideas or like visions or, or whatever. And so that's ultimately what we're trying to do. We're trying to reach or um, sort of influence and, and, um, compel would-be artists to sort of reach beyond and pull back what is already there 
but that we haven't yet seen or understood and make those things be understood. So that's very grandiose, but uh, that's, that's the goal. No, that's, that's not grandiose. It's exactly what's needed. I mean, this is so maybe who knows, maybe like this was always like sitting here waiting for us to come along and pick it up and do something. Yeah. So I I think so. Somebody just had to speak it into being that's, you know, yeah, that's how it goes. Awesome. So I hope it's not too arbitrary of an ending, but time has run out for me. So we will, uh, we'll take this up uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. And uh, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Astro. Appreciate it. Have a good time. Bye-bye.